I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Straniacs, we finally made it. We're at the finish line of this epic journey through the archives, with the final segment of The Reality Show, Part 1. This one is exclusively dedicated to thrashing a particularly fruitless approach to plumbing the depths of our shared reality. That is, the attitude that simply assumes that all of the evidence-free assertions of past eras that magic and monsters and giants once roamed the world are true. This author asserts that consciousness is the baseline of reality, and that that consciousness is of a particularly fantastic, science-denying stripe. We have a lot of fun kicking the shit out of these assertions. Hopefully you will, too. Conveniently enough, this book and its author slots nicely into our current Secret Society's focus, so expect to hear more thrashing in the future. Our cross-promo this episode is for a show whose title really says it all, Therapy for Monsters on the That's Not Canon Network. As you might expect, each episode is a therapy session between a caring clinician and some monster or another. Gollum, for example, or Cookie Monster. But it's not limited to your traditional hideous or adorable monster types. The patients can also be villains or antiheroes of various stripes, Professor Snape, for example, or the HAL 9000 from 2001, or, in a particular personal favorite, the homicidal computer GLaDOS from the Portal game franchise. Check it out in the show notes. But now, let's ridicule some poorly thought-out magical thinking in our final segment. See you with new stuff next week. ...reality or anything but. So now we think it's time to consider a truly, radically different approach to these topics. It's a view we've never really entertained before, but I think that once you really understand it, it might open your mind to a truer, rawer reality, unmediated by science, rationality, or other oppressive constructs. I'll let the author state his thesis directly. This is a history of the world that has been taught down the ages in certain secret societies. It may seem quite mad from today's point of view, but an extraordinarily high proportion of the men and women who made history have been believers. The aim is to show that the basic facts of history can be interpreted in a way which is almost completely the opposite of the way we normally understand them. In this single volume, I will show that this alternative, this mirror image view, is a consistent and cogent one with its own logic that has the virtue of explaining areas of human experience that remain inexplicable to the conventional view. So although this book can be read just as a record of the absurd things people have believed, an epic phantasmagoria, a cacophony of irrational experiences, I hope that by the end some readers will hear some harmonies and perhaps also sense a slight philosophical undertow, which is a suggestion that it may be true. Look, everyone, I know we've been hard-bitten skeptics up to this point in our series, but we've seen how squirrely and elusive the idea of shared reality is. Maybe it's time to start believing the guy who's going to re-explain the history of the world based on the esoteric magic and drugs ideas promulgated and nurtured through the centuries by secret societies. 
I mean, science and philosophy had their chance. It's time to give a real fair hearing to the magicians, the self-proclaimed sorcerers. The- nah, we're just fucking with you. This guy is a total profiling crazy. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. You got us. We're good sports about acknowledging how little we know about baseline reality, but there's no fucking way we're going to just cede the ground to this kind of mystic woo-woo bullshit just-so story. Before we get to the disemboweling, who the fuck is this guy and what's his deal? The book in question is modestly titled The Secret History of the World and was sprung upon an unsuspecting world by one Jonathan Black back in 2013. Except it turns out that Jonathan Black is actually just a pen name for Mark Booth, a publisher and former Oxford lecturer who appears to be vying for the official Paranoid Strain Most Credulous Person in the World Award. Technically, the field is wide open since the death of our hero, Art Bell. Lest you doubt us. And really, after all this time, are you seriously not willing to give us a benefit of the doubt when it comes to identifying the purest forms of crazy? The publisher put out a sort of trailer for the book, narrated by Booth himself. Think maybe we tracked this thing down and inserted it here for your delectation? You bet your sweet ass we did. And mystics say that the cosmos began when the great cosmic mind began to reflect on himself. He had it in mind to create a race of beings rather like himself. If you had been there, you might have been able to see wave after wave of thoughts emanating from the mind of God. And in the same way that over vast Unimaginable stretches of time, wave after wave, dashing on the seashore, smooth pebbles. So, wave after wave, coming out of the mind of God, fashioned the first matter. And if you were able to look more closely, you might see that these waves emanating from the mind of God were actually made up of millions of angels. Angels are the thoughts of the great cosmic mind. One of the great waves was made up of a glittering order of angels that the Bible calls the powers that be. These powers work together to create the race of beings that God has in mind. This race of beings would be able to enjoy free will and could think freely and choose who they wanted to love. The powers that be arranged themselves around the earth and were known to the ancient peoples as the gods of the solar system. The pattern that the powers that be made in the sky would help shape humanity and give humanity faculties that are unique in the cosmos. Because the moon reflects the light of the sun, for example, we too have the power to reflect, to think. So it was that matter was precipitated from the great cosmic mind But it didn't happen all at once, and for a long time, forms were more fluid and morphed, and there were giants and dwarves and monsters, and men walked with gods and angels and spirits. These are the times remembered in the early passages in the Bible and in the sacred myths of all religions. Booth's story is that he was kind of interested in esoteric views of history and reality, and then one day, the strangest thing happened. And uh, then one day this guy came to see me who was, I could tell he was a bit, he was different. There was something odd about him. I drifted into publishing and he said to me, um, will you publish some old alchemical texts? 
and I'll write some new introductions. We went out to lunch and it was the first of several lunches and I discovered that he had this amazing knowledge and I'd learned that he was an initiate of several secret societies. And I found I could ask him almost anything and, um, and he would tell me. After a while he said to me, uh, I, I think you're ready now. And I said, ready for what? And he said, initiation. And I thought about it long and hard and decided not to go with it. And that was partly because I knew by then that initiation could be very dangerous, that it does can take you quite near death. Uh, but then also I realized that I would have to take a vow of secrecy and I would never be able to write about all these wonderful things that I've learned. So, as a quick recap, Mr. Booth decided not to join a secret society, though his mysterious patron offered the opportunity, because he was afraid of the near-death aspects of the purported initiation ritual, and because he was afraid that, once sworn to secrecy, he would not be able to share the esoteric wisdom he had accumulated with us, the science-believing Hoi Polloi. Well, thank goodness he made the right choice. Uh, yeah. Thank goodness. Anyway, as Booth's purpose is to recast all of history as some sort of war of the gods, except it totally happened in real life, yo, he has a lot of displeasure to express about the primacy of science and rationality in the modern world. Science has taken over from religion as a main agent of social control. It is science that decides what is acceptable for us to believe and what is beyond the pale. In both the ancient world and the Christian era, the secret philosophy was kept secret by threatening those who trafficked in it with death. Now in the post-Christian era, the secret philosophy is still surrounded by dread, but the threat is of social death rather than execution. Belief in key tenets, such as prompting by disembodied beings, or that the course of history is materially influenced by secret cabals, has been branded as at best crackpot, at worst the very definition of what it is to be mad. See, this is exactly the sort of thing I worried about when I decided to lay bare the sheer weirdness that confronts us as modern seekers after reality in this here episode. Given how fucked up everything we heard from the sane scientists and philosophers can be, I worry that you're somehow attuned now to believing this dude's evidence-free horseshit. But I hope you see there's a huge difference between bravely saying, I don't know, when confronted with the current limits of human knowledge, as both philosophers and scientists tend to do and instead barreling through, insisting that you, in fact, do know, because a bunch of texts written thousands of years ago, without any physical evidence to their veracity, are nonetheless totally true because parts of them are in sync with other ancient allegorical texts from other societies and traditions. Or at least, in your opinion, they are. That's just math, people. Okay, enough with the preliminaries. Let's give you a few samples of pure, uncut Mark Booth crazy. These are going to be presented as individual, unconnected diamonds. I could provide more context, but it honestly wouldn't help. In the secret history, the evolution of the species were not the even progress that science supposes. There were dead ends, false starts, and even deliberate attempts at sabotage. Snakes, spiders, beetles, and parasitic creatures, on the other hand, were formed under the malignant influence of the dark side of the moon. According to the secret doctrine, the animals we know today evolved into the forms we are familiar with today's influenced by the stars and planets. 
Lions by the constellation of Leo, for instance. Bulls by the constellations of Taurus. Centaurs, mermaids, sirens, fauns, and satyrs were predecessors of anatomically modern humans, representing the impulse to create anatomically modern humans in various transitional stages. Please, someone alert the major research universities' biology departments. But he has more on the subject, namely that humans at an earlier stage were plants. Now, understand he's not saying that all life has a common ancestor, that plants and animals broadly evolved from earlier forms. No, he means at one time our ancestors were swamp thing. But he has proof. Well, not proof, more like additional nonsense. Of course, no artifacts have survived from the times when gods and protohumans lived in plant form, but there is at least a reliable record of such artifacts. By which, of course, he means that some people in the past reported hearing that somebody saw something that was kind of similar to something else that connects to his bullshit worldview. In approximately 485 before Christ, Herodotus visited Memphis in Egypt. There, in vast underground vaults, he was shown rows of statues of former kings stretching back as far as the eye could see into almost unimaginably distant times. These beings, said the priests, were born one from the other, that is to say, without the need of a sexual partner, by the plant-like method of parthenogenesis, each carrying a plague giving name, history, and annals, the wooden monuments were a record of a long-lost era of the vegetable life of humankind. Well, Herodotus was an important ancient historian. I'm assuming everything he wrote meets modern standards of skeptical rigor, evidence, and observation. Oh? What's that? How did he describe a hippopotamus when he saw one? This animal has four legs, cloven hooves like an ox, a snub nose, a horse's mane and tail, conspicuous tusks, a voice like a horse's neigh, and is about the size of a very large ox. See? Unimpeachable accuracy. Also, there are ants in India the size of foxes, apparently. Anyway, modern scholars see Herodotus as an important historian, but don't just uncritically accept all the crazy, crazy bullshit he says. A few more quotes, without much commentary, to give you some more of this book's delicious, insane flavor. Tradition tells us that as Lucifer fell, a great emerald dropped from his forehead. This signals that humanity would increasingly suffer a loss of vision in the third eye, the brow chakra. Obviously. But what of the story of the fish gods? How does that fit in? Could it be that the ancient myths anticipated the modern scientific insight that the animal life that would eventually evolve into the human being form began life as a fish? If this were true, it would be an astonishing revelation. Uh huh. Also, Booth just loves to point out that important scientific figures throughout history, like Newton and Francis Bacon, believed all kinds of esoteric nonsense. It's true. Newton famously thought his study of the dimensions of Solomon's temple in the Bible was more important than his work in physics. We respectfully disagree. On Bacon, Booth notes, It is undoubtedly true that Bacon had powers beyond the ability of science to explain today. He sent his complete works to Pope Clement IV in the mind of a 12-year-old boy called John, whom he had taught to know all his many books off by heart in a few days. Bacon used a method that involved prayers and magic symbols. Similarly, he was able to teach students Hebrew so well that they could read all of scripture in a matter of weeks. Well, sure, if it says that he did that somewhere, then obviously he did, right? I mean, why would we doubt it? The total lack of evidence? I mean, is there any good reason? Anything? Let's end this with a personal favorite. 
Anyone who has spent time with mediums or psychics accept that they often, even routinely, receive information by supernatural means. Anyone, that is, whose cast of mind is not such that they are absolutely determined to disbelieve. Now is a good time to remind everyone that for 50 fucking years, a skeptical organization called the James Randi Educational Foundation offered a million dollars to anyone who could demonstrate any sort of paranormal phenomenon under mutually agreed upon scientifically controlled conditions. In spite of over a thousand attempts, not one person was able to claim the prize. But anyway, Booth's right. Psychics are totes legit, y'all. We've hardly begun plumbing the rich veins of nonsense in this book, which will come up again when we eventually get to secret societies like Rosicrucians, Freemasons, and of course, the most gangsta of all, the Illuminati. But for now, we need to wrap this monster episode up. So in the end, what have we learned? That neither philosophy, Eastern nor Western, nor science, has managed to fully, completely plumb the depths of our shared reality, well enough that we can truly declare that we know what is, in fact, real. Nor do we understand what we mean when we say we can know something, given how elusive the concept of selfhood is. And yet, your host remains just as committed as ever to skepticism, falsifiability, and logical investigation as the best way for us to get ever closer to pinning down these elusive concepts. So why say it's better to accept scientific realism than other ideas? Mainly because scientific realism seems, at least to us, to be the approach to epistemology that requires the fewest a priori commitments. The funny thing is, worldviews like Booth's, they always ask you to accept everything you currently accept as a basis for reality. The humdrum commonplace concepts that anchor daily experience, like the idea in our everyday experience we are all living in essentially the same space and time together, that everything is subject to causation. Apologies, Mr. Hume. And the rules of basic logic, that reality can be investigated and that discoveries about it will be reproducible, etc. But then people like Booth pile a bunch of additional crap on top of those baseline assumptions. And in our estimation, they have really crappy reasons for doing so. Again, scientific realism accepts the minimum number of assumptions you have to make such that our experience of reality comports as closely as possible to what we can measure and replicate about that reality, wiggly as it may still be. Folks like Booth always want to add assumptions. That the ancient mystical descriptions of our origins are just as valid a way to read those origins as modern, replicable science. That some, but only some, Ancient stories are so important that they should be taken as truth, regardless of the total lack of positive and overwhelming presence of contradictory evidence that their approach is just as likely to yield accurate information about the past, the universe, reality, and the self, as does science and legitimate history. Booth clearly hates the ascendancy of science. As he notes, It is only in this obscure suburb of history, where nothing miraculous ever seems to happen and no great geniuses live, this age, when the standards of education of the educated masses is in steep decline. It is only in this time and place that people have held matter before mind beliefs. In all other places, at all other times, people believed the contrary. They would have found it just about impossible to imagine how anyone could believe what we do. Imagine how crabbed and cramped your view of the miraculous modern world would have to be to think this way. No geniuses? We don't even need to point to the recently deceased Stephen Hawking, nor any of the other standouts whose remarkable achievements constantly enrich our world. The point is geniuses are here in profusion, 
we're minting them faster than ever before, and they're working together more collaboratively than ever before to plumb the depths of reality. No Einstein could have built the Large Hadron Collider, but 6,000 geniuses all working together could. Education standards are falling. You can literally prove that people are smarter now than ever before in human history. It's called the Flynn Effect. The internet has arguably and permanently enhanced the creativity and available intelligence for every human on Earth, and its scope is increasing and expanding at an ever faster pace. What the fuck are you talking about, dude? And for all of the kvetching and hand-wringing and posturing, in the end, all these assholes ever prove is that however erudite, carefully researched, and ably written your ideas are, that doesn't mean your book's not part of the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. We'd love to see you join our fun, friendly Facebook group. Just drop us a request and we'll usher you through the velvet rope. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Hoss. Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in many ways, big and small. And Willem UFO makes every goddamned one of the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next time, we talk about Philip K. Dick, ancient Christian heresy, and the science of consciousness. Somehow, we think that we can pull all of that together. Can we? Who knows? In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least... Not you specifically.
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you